0: Welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as our Bible teacher explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. Also, you can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, www.fbcaa.org. You can watch our services at fbcaa.org slash live or on YouTube. We thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as we open God's Word.
1: I invite you to open in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 3, where we'll continue on as we see the record of the early uh, days and weeks of the church as it's recorded by Luke here in Acts. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking... Weeping and praising God. And all people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. In his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see now. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did, your, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Think in your mind, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel, And those who follow, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from your iniquities."
0: Well, let's turn our Bibles to uh, the book of Genesis, please. We're continuing our series in this portion of God's Word, the book of beginnings. It's in chapter 22 that we find ourselves this morning. And I'd like you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. Be engaged in your mind, not just sitting there. I find it, as a student or as a reader, being engaged, actively engaged, is so much more enjoyable than just saying, oh, I've got to do this, and you read you know, your chapter and just get through it. What are you getting out of it when you do that? Engage. Think. <clears throat> I titled the message this morning, The Offering of Isaac. The offering of Isaac. And you might say, well, you've overstated it just a little bit because Isaac wasn't actually killed as an offering. I know that. Very well aware of that. But my title refers to the command of God. And by the way, in James chapter 2, verse 21, it says something to this effect. I'll just go back there. In James chapter 2 and verse 21 it says was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered isaac his son on the altar yes, sir. did abraham offer his son on the altar the whole way all the way he gave it he gave his son to god now god didn't end up taking allowing the life to be taken of his lad but that's right and Abraham fully gave himself to God's will. We're going to see about that, an excellent example that it is. <clears throat> he was fully expecting, by the way, since I'm in the New Testament, I might as well go over to the book of Hebrews, fully expecting that God was going to raise up this boy from the dead. Hebrews chapter eleven, seventeen 17 to 19 say this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. There it is again, he offered him, not almost offered him. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. And here's his thinking, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Amen. What he knew was that God had given Isaac in the first place when it was impossible for Isaac to just come along because Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. If God gives you something in the first place, don't worry if he asks to take it away for a while or tests you by saying that it might be taken away or you worry that it might be taken away or whatever. Furthermore, God had promised numerous times that the Abrahamic covenant was going to pass through Isaac and since it had not been completed, Abraham knew now that it had to happen. I mean it had to happen so much that he had to have a son he couldn't just substitute Ishmael in there. And so by now, by the way, how how long is this after Isaac was born? Well, we don't know precisely, but we can estimate that he was that it was 15 or 20 years after he was born. And so Abraham, if you think again about that little remember that little graph that I showed you this morning in your mind, that little You know, walk with the Lord, you start out with nothing and God brings you up. Abraham's faith was a little bit shaky at the beginning, wasn't it? Ha ha, God's going to give me a son. Yeah, right. Well, later on, the laughing turned to a laughter in his wife of joy and delight that God had answered her desire to have a child. And uh, the laughter turned to a deep-seated faith in God that what God said was good and what God said would happen would indeed happen. And so this is now after the promise many years earlier to 20 years after the son was born and the promise was still not yet fulfilled, but it was in operation. You have a distance of time of 45 years perhaps, something like that. He has learned to walk in faith with God. Tremendous, tremendous example. His faith was proven real when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. That sometimes troubling phrase in James chapter 2 that we read about being justified and works being involved, I'll come in the conclusion to how that's uh, harmonized with what the Scripture teaches elsewhere. In verse number 1, let's read, It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am immediately. Here I am. The King James Version translates this as God tempted Abraham. I'll just be bold and say that's an incorrect translation. For all of you King James-only folks out there, that is an incorrect translation. Oh, yes, I know. We can go dig into the meaning of tempted and see that it means tested. Then it should have been translated as tested. It's not tempted because God does not tempt any man to solicit him to do sin. That's James chapter 1 and verse 13. So I stand on the authority of God's word to make that evaluation of the ancient translation that the King James translators did a decent job at. I'm not, I'm not going to trash it but I'm going to say we can do better. We can do better. So the correct translation, according to the the dictionary of the word, is that it means uh, to put someone to the test. And uh, joined with the notion in James that God does not tempt anyone with evil, we're certainly correct to say that this should be translated, as the New King James has it here, that God tested Abraham God was doing this to prove the genuineness of Abraham's faith. Now we get into a little sidebar discussion about why God did that. I mean God doesn't God know everything. Of course he does, but he uses means to show us things that he already knows that we need to know. And so he worked with Abraham that way. Now I want to just mention again when God called Abraham answered. Do you notice right away? Right away. Let me read on a couple more verses. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. And notice what it does not say. It does not say that Abraham went to his morning prayer and said, God, let's, let's think about this. You know, this Slow down a little bit. This is getting a little bit out of of hand here. He didn't do that. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, assistants to help them, and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told them. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. It took quite a while to go there. It was a number of miles away. He was going to Mount Moriah, that place where David would make an altar to the Lord, and eventually the temple would be built on this very place, the place where God provided, as we'll see, for Abraham and for Isaac. But I want to focus on this, that although this is a narrative passage that just simply tells us what happened, that Abraham answered God's call, and immediately the next morning got up and went about the business of obeying God, That's a major issue. This passage says that it did happen, but I'm saying to you, it should happen in our lives. When God's word comes to us, when God's call comes to us, this is a model for us as to what should happen when we hear God's word. We respond. He says, so and so, you say, I'm here, I'm listening. My ears are tuned up. I'm listening to the word of God like this morning and I'm going to do what I learn from it. I'm not going to hesitate. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to reason with God and say, God, that's unreasonable. You can't do that. I'm going to respond in faith, believing that God will do what he, you know, you might say, well, that's too much. That's too radical. That's too different. That's, that's strange. Yeah, but you find out when you walk with faith, in faith with God that it won't be too much. It won't be outlandish. It won't be impossible. You just do what God tells you to do. You might say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. God can do it through you. So God gives us a great example here, and Abraham shows it to us in the word. He answered right away. Now, God commands Abraham to take Isaac and offer him on Mount Moriah. I mentioned the eventual site of the temple, 2 Samuel 24. Uh, where Solomon built, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles also mention this as well. In fact, let's just look up one of those. Let's look up the first one, 2 Samuel 24, uh, 18. <clears> 2 <throat> Samuel 24, and verse number 18. God is judging Israel because of David's sin. And uh, it says that in. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And that happens to be that very same place. Let's look at, uh, or let me look at, rather, 1 Chronicles and uh, tie in 21.18. 1 Chronicles 21.18, oh, we have the similar passage here. Uh, this is the uh, same one, yet parallel passage. The angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so over the space of 4,000 years down to this day, we have the very place where Abraham offered his son on the altar as the temple mount. Abraham rose. He went to obey God's command. It took him three days to do it, to get there. And we see the great faith of Abraham in this passage here as we read on. And it says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and I will come back to you? Doesn't say that. It says, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Can you imagine him taking the wood and the fire and the knife? In his hand, with his son. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Hmm. Dad, aren't you missing something? Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I bet you that they had done some burnt offerings before, right? Right? Abraham had built altars everywhere he went to live and he had worshiped God. I don't think this happened just once in a while, probably all the time, annually or more than once a year. I don't know, it doesn't tell us, but he was a worshiper of God. And so there we are. Isaac is starting to get an idea that something isn't quite as expected here. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering so the two of them went together and they came to the place of which god had told him and abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and he bound isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood i mean I just think think of abraham here but think about isaac isaac was a grown young man i mean not 50 years old, but say he's 17 or 20 or 15. He, he could have resisted his dad. He didn't. He's getting instruction from his dad, evidently, along the way here, sharing uh, with Isaac what's happening. And they came to the place, and there they were, laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram And offered it up for a burnt offering, and listen to this, instead of his son. That'll come up again. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Wow, amazing. We see the great faith of Abraham, and that he said, The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. God will provide for himself a lamb, he said to his son. It doesn't say specifically uh, here, but we know from the New Testament that Abraham believed God's promise about Isaac, the, the promised son. He believed that so much that he figured that God, even if he did sacrifice Isaac, that God would raise him again from the dead. We saw that in Hebrews 11. So we don't, we don't read it here, but when we compile Hebrews into our understanding of this, you see that. Now think of it that way. Think of it that way, that you figure my son is going to be dead after I obey God's command. God is worthy of obedience, isn't he? Even the most extreme kinds of obedience he figures, and so, well, it's going to be the case. He's figuring that in his mind. You think about that. Would you have that kind of faith? No, I mean, that's not going to happen. That's, that doesn't happen. That's not what happens. Of course, the natural man does not receive the things of God that way. At the last second, of course, God stops Abraham from killing his only son and commends him because he fears God. That was the angel of the Lord. By the way, several times the Bible says his only son, his only son. We obviously know that there was another son, but that was not a legitimate son. That was not the son of the promise. This was the son between him and Sarah. That was the only one that God had promised and the only one that otherwise and all else being equal would have been born if Abraham had not sinned with Hagar, right? So at this moment, Abraham notices... A ram caught in a nearby thicket. What providential timing that was, huh? And he took it and offered it instead of his son. Now, in the Greek translation of Genesis, now remember, sometimes people get this confused and it's a little embarrassing when they do. They'll say, well, wasn't the whole Bible written in Greek or wasn't the Old Testament written in Greek? No, it was written in Hebrew and some Aramaic. And then the New Testament was written in Greek, but the Old Testament has been translated into many languages, including back in the time before Christ, the Old Testament was translated into Greek so that the people who knew Greek could read it, just like it's been translated from Hebrew into English, so you can read it, okay? And it's been that way for ever since the mid 1300s in the English language, when John Wycliffe came along and wanted to give the Bible to the English-speaking peoples, and Tyndale and all those guys that translated the Bible. Luther translated the scriptures in 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 German and so on. Very important. That's why we like to be involved in Bible translation. But in in the Greek translation, the word that's used is the word anti, anti. Now, that sounds like against, you might think, antichrist, but it's not that. This preposition means uh, something is replaced by something else. Something stands in the place of, something is instead of another thing. And so in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, the Bible says, using the same word, the Son of Man gave, came to give his life as a ransom in place of unto many. In place of. And so in this word, an event is the foreshadowing of substitutionary atonement provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the ram taking the place of Isaac, Jesus takes the place of sinners. Now I can say with full confidence that Jesus Christ took my place and your place and the place of anyone who will turn to him for rescue. I mean, you know you you need that. You know you've fallen short of the standard of proper behavior and thought. You know that the wages of such behavior is sin, the wages of such sinful behavior is death, rather. And if you don't know Christ, you have a kind of foreboding thought. What's next? What comes after I die? Where am I going to go? What's going to happen to me? Am I gonna face God in judgment? Yes, you are. But if you know Christ, then you will know the peace that comes from knowing that somebody else stood in my place. He took my spot on T, me. The doctrine of substitution, one of the most glorious doctrines of the Bible because if God did not permit substitutes, each of us would be required to pay for our own sins ourselves. You ever think about that? But that's what every religion in the world teaches, doesn't it? You do your sin, you go to purgatory and burn it off. You do your sin, you come back as a frog. Okay. You do your, you are the one who cares for your own sin. That's not Christianity, my friends. That's impossible. Now, Abraham called the name of God in that place, the Lord will provide Jehovah-Jireh. Remember uh, Hagar? What did she call God? The God who sees. The God who sees me. He saw her affliction the first time she was kicked out of the compound, the next time also he did the same. And the name that God was given here by Abraham stuck because Mount Moriah became known as the place where it shall be provided. Imagine, if you would, going up to the temple with this heritage in your background and knowing this is the place in which God provided. This is the place that represents the God who provides, the Jehovah Jireh. Now, this speaks truly of a, of a characteristic of God in general that God provides. But I think that we can get a little bit off into bad territory when we just immediately go to God provides what and we think about material blessings and material provisions and and things and maybe even people. But the point is not about God providing things. It's about him providing salvation. Jehovah Jireh salvation. God provides rescue from sin. He provides a substitute to stand in our place. This was the critical provision, and it's the one that we all need. The provision. Not of, you know, God had already provided Abraham with all the material blessing that he needed. Remember? He was rich. He had so many servants, you could hardly count them. He had a big household. He had all the wealth and power of a a small, you know, tribal state. God had already provided all of that, and, you know, he's already provided that for many of us, too. All of us, actually, that I'm looking at here, maybe even those online. He's provided the material blessings. What about the provision of salvation for you? What about the provision of a substitute? I'm beseeching you to know God that way as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides your salvation The God who provides the substitute, who provides the ram caught in the thicket for your life, for your eternal life. Now, let me mention, too, God commanded a couple of issues. God commanded here a test, okay? It wasn't a temptation, as we said. It was a real test, though. It wasn't a fake test. But notice that the test was not fully carried out to its end. So says the scriptures. So when you say, well, why'd God do that? Well, he did it as a test. And it was presented to Abraham in such a, like, no frills way that it was a real hard test for him. God gives you hard tests too sometimes, doesn't he? But He might not take you all the way to the end of that test. He's given some of our ladies that we know in our church the test of cancer in these recent couple few years. And some of our other folks with long-term health, he hasn't allowed them yet to suffer the full, how can I say, brunt of cancer, but he's presented them with, you have the big C, now what are you going to do? Some of uh, others of us have experienced the same kind of thing. And so... It's a test, but it wasn't carried out to its end. And so the Bible tells us that plainly. Now, in the end then, God did not approve or allow human sacrifice. And that's an issue that I want to touch here just for a moment as we think about this because somebody will say, well, God, you know, either God commanded human sacrifice or God never permitted human sacrifice, One, an attack on this passage in, Genesis, the other, an attack on the provision of Christ and salvation, that he died. I remember a Jewish person explicitly saying this one time to me, no human sacrifice, so Christ couldn't have died for sins. Well, I beg to differ with the gentleman because Isaiah 53 tells us something very particular about that. Have you ever thought about the Jewish and Christian faiths with relationship to human sacrifice? Human sacrifice was practiced in many ancient cultures which to us sounds like so impossibly foreign to our ears that we couldn't believe it. On both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, in times ancient, you had in the ancient Near East, you had you had this happening where in, in uh, South and Central America with the Aztecs and the, whoever did all that down there, cannibalism going on and all kinds of stuff like that, crazy ideas about if you eat your enemy, you get his powers and all that stuff. The fact is, however, that human sacrifice is not and never is approved in Scripture. That is, it's not a thing that God permitted. Every time it's mentioned in the Bible, it's an abomination. You shall not do as they do who worship Molech, who cause their children to pass through the fire. That is, to sacrifice them on an altar of fire. And if you do that, you are an abomination to God. And if you think about it, well, don't even get me going down the path of where we're at today. We're still sacrificing children today, still sacrificing babies today, friends. That's exactly what's happening under the guise of a medical procedure. You can call anything you want anything you want, but it's killing. It's murder. It's human sacrifice. In these olden times, as today, we have unwilling participants on the receiving end of the killing. And we have the situation where if people think this is going to appease the gods, they are woefully undereducated in terms of the true and living God. No human sacrifice could ever appease him because no human is perfect like that perfect lamb to take away sin. So all of it's out. What other humans were killed in a sacrificial way in the Bible with God's approval? There's only one with a capital O. And this passage foreshadows it. A very special one who gave his life an offering for sin. He rent, Listen to this. This is Isaiah 53. This is a great passage that deals with this. Isaiah 53 I don't have the New American Standard, which I quote in the notes, I think. Is it the New American Standard? Actually, I didn't note it there. I should have. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, the other translation has it this way, he rendered himself as a guilt offering. He rendered himself as a guilt offering. There's, there's a humanish, humanish sacrifice, if I could say it that way. How can we reconcile then Christ's death with God's hatred of human sacrifice? Well, two things at least. Number one, Christ was a willing volunteer. He's come, he says, to do God's will. I'm doing the will of God. I'm volunteering, volunteering myself. And then he says, uh, the scripture tells us that he was not a mere man. He was more than a man. For a mere man could not be a perfect sacrifice, but he indeed could be. As a man, he could die. As God, he had the infinite value in his life to be able to give for the life of the world. And so we deal with human sacrifice that way, reminding ourselves it didn't happen here. It couldn't happen here. God is very displeased with it. But there was one special case In which one like to us, like to us, came and took our place on a cross to give his life to pay for our sins. Uh, We should talk about that sometime a little bit more the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement is not numerical, it's not financial, it's not exemplary, although we might use examples or language like that. You can't add up how much sin we have done, and then say that number applies to Christ. What happened in the atonement was what we call an ethical atonement, an arrangement by which the badness of sin was poured out upon Christ, not in a numerical way. This, that's not how it works. The, the very weight, the badness, the blackness, the darkness... All of it was poured out upon Jesus Christ, and he took it upon himself. There's no more or less that he could have done to provide for your redemption. To provide for your redemption, or you times 10 billion people's souls, he had to do the very same thing because that sin had that ethical weight. It was a violation, and is a violation of the will of God. And that violation needs to be cared for, needs to be handled. So, I must hasten on because of the time. We look at Genesis 22:15 to 19. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, "'By myself I have sworn,' says the Lord, "'because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, then blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies.'" In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt there, there in that place at Beersheba or Beersheba, some might say. Remember that God uh, told Abraham to establish in this uh, chapter 17 about the establishment of the covenant and about the circumcision ritual, that was the sign of that covenant. Remember Genesis 17, uh, 7. I will establish my covenant between you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. And then verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And then he gave him the covenant terms and the uh, sign that it would have with it. So the Abrahamic covenant is uh, reconfirmed yet again. The promise was given in chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, now chapter 22. The child was promised in 17 and 18 was born in the prior chapter that we looked at last time. Abraham ranged from ages 75 to up to maybe age 120 at this time. so we have a 45-year period of time in which Abraham has been growing in his faith, and he has this young man now that he's nearly offered and killed in sacrifice to God. So in any case, over a period of 40 years or more, God repeated the covenant to Abraham at least five times. Abraham's faith had grown greatly from his initial laughter about not having a son to the point in which he had resolved to offer his son back to God in a sacrifice to him. He was convinced that God would fix the situation. And this convinced state of mind that he exercised was from his faith. Are you similarly situated where you say, look, what God has called me to do, I will obey in faith, knowing that it's going to turn out all right from God's perspective. It might not seem possible from my perspective, but it will, but it will. Now, I'll let you read verses 20 through 24. It tells a little bit about Abraham's extended family tree from his brother. (coughs) Sorry. From his brother. One second. And um, so it, it talks about the children that were born and the extended family and a, a number of them, and they will become significant. One of them will become significant because she will become Isaac's wife uh, down the line some number of years. So I'll let you look at that. <clears throat> but in conclusion, let me just note this. In all of this, Abraham and his conduct confirmed his righteousness before God. Now listen, that righteous standing that Abraham had was obtained by faith before and now is demonstrated by works. That's the harmonizing of Paul and James that they're really battling two different errors. Paul is battling the idea that you can by Legalism by, by works, achieve right standing with God. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not it. Faith is the only way of salvation. Salvation comes by faith. If you want to be right with God, you must believe in Jesus Christ. James is dealing with the other side who is saying antinomianism. Well, now that I'm saved, I don't have to do anything. James says, no, your faith is demonstrated by your works. You're justified initially by faith, and you're justified Afterwards, showing that your faith is real by demonstrating it through works. That's the meaning of those two things that are brought together in James where we see this case of Abraham. When was Abraham born again, could we say? When was he saved? Well, at least by Genesis 15, which was 40-odd years earlier because it says he believed God and God imputed it to him for righteousness. So he received righteousness by faith, but now he demonstrates righteousness by works. So we're not afraid of works. We're clear-minded, though, that we don't achieve salvation by works. However, you better be busy about demonstrating your justification because James says, look, if you're not demonstrating it, it may just be dead. We don't want to see dead faith, do we? We want a live faith, a demonstrated faith, That is demonstrated by works. True faith saves, true faith then works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and see this great passage that teaches the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that teaches us even more. We didn't emphasize this as much, but we should have. The the point of the whole thing is that you provide. You provide that justification. You provide that substitute. You provide the one that stands in the place of. And so, help us to take this truth home with us and remember that you do provide not just the material things, but you provide the substitute. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.